0: Hey, it's Chris. Thanks for listening. Another volatile week on Wall Street. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to the companies making headlines. We're going to get to the stocks on our radar. And it's brought to you by TD Ameritrade. You have an investing style. TD Ameritrade has a mobile app to match it. Check out TD Ameritrade Mobile or Think or Swim Mobile to find the one that's right for you.
1: Everybody needs money. That's why they
2: call it
3: money. this. Oh, From Fool Global
0: Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money! It's the Motley Fool Money radio show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio this week, senior analyst Jason Moser, Andy Cross, and Ron Gross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, 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 Chris! We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We've got a few stocks on our radar, but we will begin, once again, with the market in general. The Nasdaq and S&P 500 were basically flat, heading into Friday. Things fell a little bit Friday morning, Andy, as of this conversation. Uh, markets down about 2%. Um, this was one of those weeks, it wasn't nearly as bad as last week. But when you looked at all of the swings during the week, it actually felt worse.
1: And The reason it feels worse, Chris, as we've talked about, is from a behavioral side, we know we as investors and people in general, we feel our losses twice as much as we feel our gains. So, those days when the Dow is down 1,000 points and then it snaps back 1,000 points the next day, those days when it's down just feels much worse to us. We saw the Fed jump into the markets and cut rates by 50 basis points on Tuesday. Um, the markets actually got spooked by that and they just thought that, hey, maybe the Fed knows some things that we don't know. And then, of course, they rebounded on Wednesday, partly because of the election from Super Tuesday and the results we saw there. So, we're seeing this rocky environment that we just have not experienced before. And furthermore, as we know, because of the uncertainty around the coronavirus and just the news flow that is coming out, both how it's impacting our investor human psychology, investor psychology, and then just as citizens and how we take care of ourselves and what will happen with this and just the length of it and the uncertainty behind that is just driving this market volatility.
2: Yeah, I think the volatility creates the perception of weakness, but that isn't always the case. I'll, I'll use myself as an example. I bought a stock on Friday, same stock I bought last week. I was thinking I was averaging down and getting a better price. When I looked at the actual data, I actually bought the stock higher than yeah. I did last week. And that's because I mistakenly thought we had a really weak um, last four days. And, and that's just incorrect.
3: Yeah, I mean, it, 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 this has all happened very quickly. I mean, we did just witness the fastest. Correction in the history of of the markets. So I mean, that's that's worth keeping in mind. And I, I think to that point too, it, it it can always go lower, right? I mean, that that was record setting, and it's understandable why. I think a lot of it is based on the fact that we. Just don't know. I mean, we we continue to talk about all of this stuff, and really, at the end of the day, there's just so much that we don't know that creates a lot of uncertainty. And and we're going to find out over the course of the next quarter uh, to two quarters exactly the economic impact here. So we've we've talked about how there could be a potential recession that comes from this, and that's regardless of whatever monetary policy, whatever stimulus. I mean, you can only do so much. People are still going to be afraid to go out and do things, and this is a consumer economy for the most part. So I, I, I just I think it's worth keeping in mind that it, it certainly could get worse before it gets better. So it seems like there are a lot of opportunities on these dips out there. Take it slow because there there likely will be more opportunities coming up.
2: Yeah, in in the first few minutes here, we've actually talked more about stocks than we have about companies. And as fools, we tend to um, say let's talk about companies more than we talk about stocks. And and if we remove the volatility and we remove the up and downs of of big moves in the stock market, and we look to what's actually happening with companies, it's interesting to see. Obviously, different industries are affected more than others, and we don't know the severity or the length of time that these um, companies will be impacted. But I think it does slow us down just a bit, and it even takes um, kind of the the temperature down a little bit if we just think about our companies and whether they're strong companies run by great leaders.
1: Let's not forget, in a normal environment, we would probably be talking about the jobs report today that came out very strong in the U.S. with 273,000 jobs added way above the estimates. Now, of course, that was before a lot of the coronavirus. So, we are at least coming into this on a very strong note from the U.S. economy. Uh, But, of course, as Jason was saying, uh, it's just going to be the uncertainty with like how long this will last and what will be the economic impact and obviously which businesses are most impacted by that
0: well let's close with this because uh, to Ron's point um, we like to focus on businesses um, and a lot of businesses uh, are much cheaper hmm. today than they were say a month ago and yet I think it's also fair to say that there are some businesses out there even though their stock is a lot cheaper, Maybe it's still one to avoid. So, Ron, I'll start with you. Fill in the blank here. I know blank looks really cheap right now, but I wouldn't buy it.
2: At the risk of of, of stating the obvious, I'm, I'm going to go go to travel, and that's airlines, hotels, but really specifically cruise lines and cruises. Um, I'm not there yet. I think this is going to get worse, significantly worse, before it gets better. Um, over folks like Royal Caribbean, Norwegian, and Carnival, and all those, although those stocks are trading at six or seven times forward earnings. Um, I'm just not ready to, to put my money there yet. Jason? Yeah,
3: I feel like restaurants. I mean, I don't own a whole heck of a lot of restaurants, but I do feel like restaurants for now. I think there's going to be an opportunity to buy them. I don't think that time is now. Uh, I, I do think we're going to see a lot of depressed numbers coming out from restaurants in the coming weeks and months, along with a lot of um, uncertainty as to when they feel like that traffic is going to come back. And we talk about this a lot with. Restaurants is that you can't really get that traffic back. Those are lost sales that just you're not going to get them back. Uh, When you look over the last month, Darden down 20%, Blumenbrand's down 20%, Brinker International down 28%, heck, even Chipotle's down 15%. So I I, I do think the casual dining space in particular is going to feel a pinch here, and I think it's going to be something where we see it's going to be a long, sort of protracted. story to tell there, Uh, there will be a time to get into them. I just don't think it's now. Chris, I I
1: think uh, the retail environment, which has just been um, outside of Amazon, Walmart, and maybe Costco, uh, just looking at the stocks of Nordstrom, Kohl's, Macy's, Gap's, all down more than 20%. The stocks sell at uh, price-to-earnings multiples of um, less than nine times in general. I just think that environment, they've already been struggling so much, and if you're trying to catch a falling knife there, I just don't think that's the time to go shopping shopping in that retail environment.
0: Speaking of Costco, let's get to some corporate headlines this week. Costco's second quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected. This is a good report, Ron. Anecdotally, you see the stories about people here in the U.S. buying in bulk because of the coronavirus. Uh, That seems like it would bode well for a business like Costco.
2: Yeah, and they did note that February sales benefited from an uptick in consumer demand from coronavirus, um, possibly to the tune of about 3% on a comp sales basis. So, that certainly is helping. But even even x that, this is a very strong report, with comp sales up 8.9% in the U.S. and overseas, e-commerce up 28%. Now, they got some help there because Thanksgiving occurred uh, one week later, Um, so there was a little bit of a benefit there. But regardless, it was a very strong quarter. Traffic increased 5.9% worldwide, 6.1% in the U.S. Transaction size was up almost three percent. Membership fee income, all important for Costco, up six percent. And equally important, renewal rates U.S. and Canada renewal rates almost ninety one percent on the membership side worldwide at about eighty eight percent margins um, down a, a bit. Um, some some lower margin products coming through on uh, due to promotional items being sold on Black Friday, Cyber Monday. But still, you had earnings per share up at about five percent. A very strong report.
0: Hasn't it been a bunch of years since Costco raised that membership fee? I'm not looking to raise everybody's prices, but it seems like they've been very measured in the timing of the raise, the amount that they raise. It wouldn't surprise me at all if they could pull that lever again in 2020.
2: Yeah, I'm drawing a blank. As to maybe, it's maybe been a couple of years. Yeah, I think they, um, maybe they do it you know. much
1: more on the business side with the business clients. Then maybe more pricing, increasing the pricing there.
2: But I think I think we're a little bit due. You might be right within within a year or two, um, and that certainly is a lever that they're going to continue to be able to pull. You know, every few years or so, um, we talk about the stock. Stock's trading 35 times. I've I've been saying for a while. It's just it's just not cheap here, especially when you can buy Walmart at 22 or Target at 15. But it's an exceptionally well-run company.
0: Okta, the cloud-based software company, closed out the fiscal year on a solid note. Okta's fourth quarter revenue came in higher than expected. Not profitable yet, Andy, but that loss is getting smaller.
1: Well, I think that is some of the concern, Chris, with investors. And the stock was a little bit rocky after the announcement came out. Uh, it was a very nice quarter from the sales side. Uh, from the revenues, were up 45 percent. The subscription sales were up um, a little bit higher than that, up more than 46 percent. So that's good to see. Um, their billings, when they look forward for the year, up more than 50 percent. They added 100 more than 140 customers with a contract value of more than 100,000. Uh, that's important because those large clients are very profitable and high-margin for them. Um, half of those new clients that they, they are added um, were from totally new customers, not from existing customers. So, so, continuing to see growth on the customer side. The challenge is the profit side. So, The guidance on the profit side was a little bit weaker than I think maybe people were expecting, uh, but the revenue growth is still very exceptional, and it's just a really well-run business by two co-founders that um, are really continuing to get it done.
0: Fourth quarter revenue for Zoom video grew 78%. Jason, that's the kind of growth that we like to see out of our growth companies. Absolutely. But, uh, uh, but Zoom stock has already had such a great rise just in 2020 alone. Um, maybe not a surprise that uh, this report didn't really move it any.
3: Well, I mean, I think coronavirus notwithstanding, I mean, I think this is a really good business and I think it's a stock worth owning. I think this quarter's performance only reinforced that in my eyes. But when you look at what the stock has done, From the release on Thursday, it it was a little bit of a whipsaw. It seems like it's given back all of those gains really here on Friday. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, maybe the market can't really make up its mind. But to your point, revenue up 78%, I mean, that's just really, really impressive. But there are reasons because of that. I mean, they now have 81,900 customers with more than 10 employees. That's up 61% from a year ago. They have 641 customers contributing more than $100,000 in trailing 12 month revenue. That's up Eighty-six percent from a year ago. So they're signing in clients that are spending a lot of money and talk about big clients. They just signed Johnson and Johnson. Maybe you've heard of them. <laughs> uh, I mean, so there's just it's a lot going on there. The net dollar expansion rate with customers with more than ten employees above 130% for the seventh consecutive quarter. so They're figuring out ways to continue to monetize that existing customer base as they bring new customers in. Uh, strong guidance. They're closing in on $1 billion in revenue here in this coming year, and I suspect that's really only the start. With all of the options and the opportunities that they could do with that platform, and clearly a leader in Eric Juan, who's just dedicated to this business dedicated to the cause of making people's lives better, happier, I'm just just really in line with a lot of, of what we believe in here at The Motley Fool. So, uh, yeah, I think steady as she goes, this is one you want to continue to hold.
1: Yeah, Interesting. The stock's done very well because of the concern of the coronavirus and that more and more people will be working remotely. They said that in China, they removed the 40-minute limit for the free meetings, so they expanded that to help to give people more access to Zoom technology there. So, in China, they are doing the right things to help people in that um, country that's been hit by the coronavirus.
3: And the Zoom phone product, which is, I mean, that's that's something that really is still very new, but really starting to gain traction. So, it, just, it goes to show you, there are going to be a lot of different ways they can take this business. And, and really, the video conferencing, I think, is just the first step of many. You
0: know how every year there's some sort of significant weather event, and there will be businesses that will, in their quarterly conference call, they will blame the weather and (laughs) they are right to do so. But there's always a couple of management teams that try to get in from the side and use the weather as an excuse. and It's like, no, you don't get to do that. (laughs) I feel like with the coronavirus, we've entered this new phase where there are companies, and Zoom Video is one of them, where it's like, They can't say, Eric Yuan can't come out and say, holy cow, is this good for our business? And yet, it actually is really good for video conferencing.
3: You have to be careful how you message that. Another, I was a watched the whole TeleDoc Investor Day uh, presentation yesterday. They got a number of questions regarding that. Management was very, you got very to be hesitant, very diplomatic, very diplomatic, very good word to use there. Uh, you, you do have to be very careful how you message those things.
2: I think the way to go, is you say, you know, because of the coronavirus, more companies than ever were introduced to our products. Now it's up to us to execute and make sure that those. Companies are delighted by our products. And I'm
3: sorry I mentioned Teledoc Mac. I'll drop a dollar of the Teledoc, uh, Teledoc jar on the way out of here after, after we're done.
0: Coming up, the surprising growth stock that is probably in your home right now. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Full Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Andy Cross and Ron Gross. Two executives in the headlines this week. Late on Thursday, J.P. Morgan Chase announced that CEO Jamie Dimon underwent emergency heart surgery earlier in the day. He is reported to be recovering well, and obviously, we wish him the best. Ron, there is a short list of business leaders whose impact goes far beyond the company that they run. Jamie Dimon is absolutely on that list.
2: I completely agree. He's kind of one of these larger-than-life figures. Not only is he a great operator and a great banker, but he can opine on the economy, politics. He's highly uh, respected. He's got great hair. Um, <laughs> there's just many things about him that 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 you know he can go to the White House and and talk to the president and and the, they will listen, um, whether it's on the economy or, or a wide variety of subjects. So hopefully um, he recovers quickly, um, and and this is all fine. In the interim, I think the company is in good hands with co-presidents Daniel Pinto and Gordon Smith. But I emphasize, in the interim, while he's recovering, if, if, God forbid, this is worse than perhaps we think, that would be a little bit of trouble there, because we do want to see Jamie Dimon back at the helm with J.P. Morgan. And I would imagine that the CEOs
0: of the other Wall Street banks want to see him back at the helm, because if not, then one of them
2: is going to have to step up and <laughs> take the heat on Capitol Hill. And nobody's better at that than Dimon is. Yes, I think I think everyone wants him back and wants him healthy. Let's not forget he d- did beat throat cancer in 2014. He's a tough guy. I think we'll see him back.
3: Well, I mean, with the the political angle there, I mean, I think that's really because at the end of the day, Diamond's the smartest guy in the room, right? I mean, yeah. he's instructing everyone up there. I don't know that you have that with anybody else in the industry, or at least the perception of that, and that, that that's something to remember. On a much lighter note, Taco Bell's takeover
0: of Chipotle is now complete. Steve Ells, the founder of Chipotle, is stepping down as chairman of the board. He was CEO until late 2017. When he stepped down, and a few months later, Brian Nickel left Taco Bell to become Chipotle CEO.
3: Yeah, I mean, at first I thought Els stepping down was essentially a nothing burrito. I mean, it just didn't matter. Now, with that said, I actually think this works out really well for the company because Nickel's been calling the shots here since he took over. And in the big question for us as investors for a while was, would Els get back in there and start meddling? I mean, he came up with a great concept, but I think he hit that ceiling where he just wasn't ready to take this company to the next level. And that's understandable. It's it's a specific skill set, and it's not easy to do. They've got this company in, different, in a different place now with different leadership, and I think that they just don't need Steve Ells to, to guide them in any decision-making going forward. So, for me, uh, this actually, at the end of the day, is a positive. Shares of Campbell's Soup up
0: 15% this week after second-quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected. Campbell's Soup, Ron. I mean, yes, they've got Goldfish and Pepperidge Farm, but this is a soup company, and the stock was up 15%.
2: Soup is good food, my friend. <laughs> um, yeah, the stock's been on fire. It's it's largely because I think of better than expected results because the 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 report didn't really knock the cover off the ball. Sales were flat. Um, sales at the U.S. soup unit up 1%. Organic sales in the snack division up 2%. Um, so, so, nothing too extravagant there. But gross margins were up a bit. Um, they're getting their house in order. They sold off some of their fresh food and their international snack brands, which was a pretty great move because they were really over-levered. They had more than $9 billion in debt. They're now down to $5.8 in debt. I think folks are focused on that um, largely. Um, And they have some uh, great savings program in place. They've already saved about $650 million. Isn't a little bit of the
0: rise that we're seeing, the fact that, to go back to Costco, people are hoarding? And soup is one of the
2: things they're hoarding. Well, as a, using myself as an example, there may be many cans of Campbell chicken noodle soup in my home as we speak. But they did raise guidance, which I think investors really appreciated seeing it, and the adjusted earnings were up 11%. So, a very strong report, but an even stronger stock price.
0: Ron Gross, Jason Moser, Andy Cross, guys, we'll see you later in the show. Up next, a conversation with Professor Emily Balchettis on how successful people see the world. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Hey, before we get to my conversation with Professor Balchettis, quick shout out to TD Ameritrade. Do you wish you had a second opinion before placing a trade? With a strategy gut check from TD Ameritrade's trade desk. You'll get a second set of eyes on your trade idea to help you make decisions with more confidence. Their team of experts are available to help you weigh the risks and potential rewards so you understand the ins and outs of your trade. To learn more about how they can help, contact the Trade Desk at tdameritrade.com. TD Ameritrade, where smart investors get smarter. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money, I'm Chris Hill. Emily Balchettis is a professor of psychology at New York University. She's just written her first book, entitled, Clearer, Closer, Better, How Successful People See the World. I caught up with her last week and began our conversation by asking how, out of all the disciplines in psychology, she chose this as the topic that she wanted to tackle.
4: I think what really got me was that I've been spending 20 years studying the science of motivation and uncovering those those obstacles that get in the way of uh, us meeting our goals, but also the surprising tactics that we have available to ourselves that we don't realize that can help us overcome those challenges. So that's the science that I've been studying for 20 years. And then that book, this book, at this point in my life was really because I needed to figure out for myself what would work for me and what wouldn't. I had just given birth to my first child. Life was crazy for, for a reason that I talk about in the book. I decided this is the moment and when my son was four months old that I need to learn to play drums, um, which was a, a very um, uh, odd decision, I admit, from the outside. But there was just so much going on, on my own on my own plate that uh, I wanted to apply the tactics that I'd been studying in the lab to myself and see what stuck.
0: I'm definitely interested in the drums, but let me come back to that because... Some of the examples that you highlight in the book are are pretty interesting to me as someone who looks at businesses. Um, and obviously, when we're looking to be more successful, goal setting is involved. And one of the things that struck me was the way that a company like 3M, which is one of those businesses that people have their products in their home and office, whether they realize it or not, but the way 3M goes about goal setting was a little surprising to me.
4: Yeah, it's really incredible because they set what might seem like unmeetable expectations for where sources of revenue should come from, that they hold the expectation that 25% of their revenue should come from products that didn't exist five years ago. And since they set that goal, they've hit that mark and exceeded it every year. So, they're constantly innovating. Um, and and that's what people have really been interested in, is how do they do that? How, from one year to the next year, are they reinventing 30% of their business? That's, that's the mark that they've actually hit, exceeding their goal. And part of it comes down to the culture that they create. And perhaps surprisingly is that they have a real openness and acceptance of the possibility of failure. So the idea The idea here is that if we just put on the table that some of our approaches are going to be missteps, that something that we might have invested in may not have legs or may not bear out, that if we're open about that, we can accept the possibility of defeat sooner, so call it faster. We can call in backup asking for help or bringing in a team for consultation faster without a stigma uh, or without a feeling of embarrassment. Um, And and that really is, is part of the key to coming up with something that literally hasn't existed before.
0: Well, speaking of embracing failure, um, one of the people you write about is Charlie Munger, uh, the famous—not uh, as famous as Warren Buffett, but the famous two investors, vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway. Um, Munger always struck me as a smart guy. Um, I, don't, I don't think that's particularly a, ground, a groundbreaking observation, but what was interesting to me was the amount of time that Charlie Munger focuses on failure, and in particular, his own failures, his own, I guess, I don't want to say self-doubt, but it's almost like he comes up with an idea and then spends more time trying to shoot down the idea he just came up with.
4: Yeah, exactly. What what I didn't know uh, before really diving into his personal story is that Charlie Munger is a college dropout. He went to school to study math. He switched to physics. He left the university before he completed his degree, and then went on to become a meteorologist in the U.S. Army in World War II. When his military career was over, he went on to study law at Harvard Law School, and he graduated magna cum laude but none of that education is is what he's built his he and Warren Buffett have built their business on of course it's finance and business and economics uh, and when you and when he explains like well where did that knowledge come from He never took a class in accounting or in economics so how did he learn what he needed to make some of you know to build this empire And he says it really is about his independent studies that he would set aside time every day from the beginning of career to just read as widely as he could, reading uh, the founding principles um, that our forefathers of America used to create um, the Constitution, for example, and um, and the principles um, that that served as the founding force for Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, he was just reading like a crazy wide library, and what he was doing was trying to understand the principles. Of of human decision making, before that field even existed, what he recognized was that there is just um, there is a, a, a wealth of ways that our decisions can be made in error. And he himself believed that he contributed uh, to a lot of those errors in decision-making. And so, he was really trying to come up with, what are some principles that he could take from one decision to the next or across uh, different issues in business that he might be facing? And what are those principles that might lead his decision-making astray? And he'd spent decades formulating what he ultimately came up with as a list of 24. 24 issues or problems with decision-making that that could cloud his own and others' ability to come up with the right answer. Uh, he's distilled that down into ten principles that he put into his book, Poor Charlie's Almanac, um, and he uses that list as sort of uh, to cross-reference his own decisions before he before he rolls them out, recognizing that principle number one is that his own ability to assess whether the decision is a good one or a bad one that his ability to assess that is circumspect. And so, he should have some sort of external source of accountability, this checklist that he references.
0: One of the things you write about is visual framing. Um, and I'm not going to try and explain what visual framing is, but the way it applies to business struck me because um, you end up writing about Walmart and their very deliberate strategy of keeping their shelves cluttered, which goes against some other examples that we've seen in business over the past decade, where I'm thinking of a company like Best Buy, where part of Best Buy's turnaround involved a strategy of completely remaking their stores so that there was less clutter, they were more visually appealing. But Walmart appears to have had great success doing the opposite.
4: Mm -hmm. Walmart did have a period, too, where it tried that slimmed-down visual appearance and what they found was that that tactic totally backfired for them. They saw that sales decreased uh, during that period of time when they tried out that that new visual strategy, and so they went back to what they'd always been doing before, to um, you know, to, to great financial ends. And the idea here uh, with the visual frame is that what falls within our line of sight nudges our choices, maybe with our awareness and often without our awareness. So. You know, what we see is what we act on. And the same goes with Walmart's strategy, which is, if it's in sight, then people will be interested. It'll, it'll catch their eye, and it might catch a, a bit of their wallet, too. So, when they took those items off of the end caps, or they took them off of the pallets in the middle of the aisles, there was less to catch people's eye, less that fell in their visual frame, and as a result, they purchased less.
0: Your book adds to the growing body of evidence regarding the drawbacks of multitasking. Why do you think a lot of employers continue to state, that's a quality they're looking for when they're seeking to hire?
4: We live in a very busy world. Any one of us is, uh, has probably far more on our to-do list than we're going to be able to get done in a day. And, and, and when we couple that with these really ambitious goals that we set for ourselves, for our teams, or for our organizations, there's just a lot to get done. And we think that multitasking is going to be the solution to that, where our needs maybe exceed our resources of time or personnel. And it seems like it's an appealing solution to this dilemma. In fact, when people multitask, they report enjoying the experience. They feel like they're productive. But actually the science says that for the most part they're not. They are less effective uh, when they're multitasking than if they're able to maintain a single focus. Now, that makes multitasking sound like a bad idea. And that's that's not the take-home message that I want to that I want to put out there. Instead, multitasking is a tool that we should use wisely. So it's sort of a, a two-edged sword here that sometimes multitasking can can be effective. For instance, when we're feeling understimulated, it's an area we have great expertise in. It's something we've done time and time again. You might you know, feel burnt out or understimulated. In that case, multitasking is effective. The more that we can sort of give our mind to juggle, it can actually be exciting and uh, invigorating. And so multitasking can actually help us to focus up, get more done, become more effective and more efficient, and engage our brain in a way that perhaps it didn't feel like it was before. And we can do that up until a point. There are benefits of multitasking in this space where we have expertise or the task demands aren't as great as as we can handle. But then there's this point where it starts to dip down again, and where where multitasking is actually ineffective. And that's a space that we might find ourselves in a lot uh, at work. so there was a really cool study done, actually, of emergency room doctors, and they were looking at how effective are doctors as their caseload changes, you know, from uh, across the evening or across their shift. And what they found was that doctors, of course, do a really good job of handling their patients, but they can do an even better job as the patient caseload grows from one to two to three. There's downtime when you're working with any patient. You're waiting for a consultation from another doctor, or you're waiting for lab results to come back in. And When their caseload increased, the doctors were actually more effective at at figuring out uh, how to take advantage of that downtime. It's not just emergency room doctors that have downtime, right? So, this is an analogy that we can take to sort of any any space that we might be in where we're waiting for somebody to report back or waiting for new information to come in. What do we do with that downtime? And when we have a little bit more on our plate, we figure out ways to be creative about how to use that downtime. But, as I was saying, uh, with, with the rest of us, these emergency room doctors had a tipping point. When their caseload got to about five or six patients, now that was just too much. That, uh, there wasn't a way to become more efficient with downtime. There just wasn't any more time. And so what they found, what, this, what these researchers found, was that, Around patient five or six now each patient was waiting a lot longer than the ones than the ones that had been there when the caseload was smaller. The patients were also returning to the emergency room within 24 hours at a higher rate indicating that the doctors perhaps were misdiagnosing or not prescribing a course of treatment that would be sufficient to remedy the symptoms and so the patients had to return and so those were clear markers of uh, declines in performance and efficiency. So, multitasking helped them ramp up and do their job better until they reached that tipping point. And then, and then there was a decline, and multitasking wasn't effective.
0: The tools that you write about in the book, how helpful were they when you were trying to learn how to play the drums?
4: What I like to say is that, as a social psychologist, I have the science at my disposal. I know what the problems are. I know what some solutions are. But just like an MD doesn't protect a doctor from getting the sniffles, having that knowledge didn't protect me from making the same mistakes that I was investigating with the people who come through my lab.
0: Last thing, and then I'll let you go. At The Motley Fool, we spend a lot of time Focused on the importance of long-term investings, um, that is a little bit more challenging to do um, uh, on days when, say, for example, the Dow Jones average drops a thousand points. Um, what is the best way to help people focus on long-term success?
4: Mm-hmm. I'm going to offer two pieces of advice, and they might sound contradictory. They're two of the tools that I talk about in the book. One is narrowed focus. And when should we really keep our eyes on the prize, um, and when, what will that benefit and then the second is a wide bracket almost the opposite when do we take in the big picture so when we see blips like this like this drop in the dow jones is a blip it's going to it's going to remedy itself this isn't going to last for months or for years there is a tendency for us to overreact to those momentary blips these blips will right themselves but if we if we are just focused on what happened today and we react to that then we might make a decision that we could regret in a in a week or a month from now uh, when when we see See this um, this trend shift. So by narrowly focusing on today's market, uh, we we might make a mistake that we might make a mistake. We might make a choice that we regret. But but zooming out, looking at the bigger picture, looking at the trajectories of our investments over time, um, I think we'll find that what we've invested in has some staying power, and maybe we should just stick with it. Now, the other thing about the narrowed focus is that it can be helpful when we're talking about a goal that we have that might be in the far-off future, say a year from now, two years from now. Sometimes people have a hard time uh, connecting today with that distant future, and what we can do is by instead of focusing on the market today, we can focus on what our goals are for a year from now or two years from now, and we can contract that space. What, who is going to benefit that, uh, in, in the future? Who's going to benefit at that one-year out mark or that two-year out mark? And it can help us realize that the choices we make today will have consequences for that far-off future by keeping our eyes on the prize.
0: Emily, I know you're busy. I really appreciate your time, and congrats on the book.
4: Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity to have a conversation with you and your audience.
0: The book is Clearer, Closer, Better. How Successful People See the World. It's available everywhere you find books. Up next, if you're looking for stock ideas, we've got a few you might want to jot down. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Andy Cross, and Ron Gross. Time to get to the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is going to hit you with a question. So, Ron, you're up first. What are you looking at?
2: I got 3M. MMM, coincidentally, is the ticker. Large diversified manufacturer, Post-it notes, Scotch tape, but everything else from healthcare, industrial and transportation as well. Currently yielding uh, just over 4% in the news a lot lately because it manufactures the masks that are used to protect against coronavirus. But I caution investors, that's not a reason to buy this stock. It's a very small part of this business. Uh, The company is a dividend aristocrat, has increased its dividend for 62 consecutive years. Stocks underperformed lately. They're undergoing a bit of a restructuring, uh, moving a little bit more into healthcare, making some acquisitions around that. But I think this is a very stable, nice dividend-paying company.
0: Dan, question
2: about 3M? Of course, Chris. Uh, Ron, do you have a favorite 3M product? The yellow sticky note for sure is my go-to.
3: Jason Moser, what are you looking at? Well, sound the trumpets, because I'm going with Churchill Downs this week, ticker is CHDN, and everybody knows Churchill Downs probably is the Kentucky Derby Company. Kentucky Derby starting, I think we got May 2nd this year, right? So, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out with everything that's going on right now in, in the headlines with coronavirus. But the, the, the company is far more than just the Kentucky Derby. They operate can, uh, casinos, other tracks and gambling sites. Uh, they own Twin Spires, which is the largest online horse betting system in the U.S. Gives you access to 203,000 races at 350 tracks, 365 days a year from 14 countries, Ron! a lot of numbers! And if that's not <laughs> enough to convince you, they're also building out their Bet America platform, which is incorporating more sports betting. So, as we see the regulations come down for that, there's a big opportunity there. Uh, Shares are down 10% over the last month. I think there's a good possibility we'll see that uh, come down even more as as concerns play out in in the headlines. Insiders own 13% of the company, and we just recommended it recently in our new Future of Entertainment service.
0: Dan, question about Churchill Downs? Is there anything more eye rollingly tedious than somebody who's really into horse racing talking about horse racing?
3: (laughs) Well, I'm not a horse racing aficionado, and I don't really know one in that line of work, so I'm going to just not say anything about eye rolling, Dan. I, I like all people and horses and just, you know. Andy Cross, what are you looking at?
1: I'm looking at Luckin' Coffee, which is actually located in China and it uh, has more than 4,000 locations, very tech focused, very China focused, more than $10 billion market cap. And the stock has peaked at about 50 this year. Now it's down to 37. Obviously, careers are the are concerns on the coronavirus, but I think the opportunity could be very interesting for Luckin' Coffee. LK is the symbol, Dan.
0: Dan? Andy, what's your favorite type of coffee drink?
1: You know, I like an Americano,
0: just straight-up coffee with maybe a little bit of sugar. What do you want to add to your watch list, Dan? Uh, surprising everybody, I'm adding 3M. Hey, hey. To my watch list. Hey. I just Woo-hoo. love, love, love that scotch tape. All right. Andy Cross, Jason Moser, Ron Gross, thanks for being here. Thanks, thanks guys. guys. That's going to do it for this week's show. Our engineers, Dan Boyd. Our producers, Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.